What a view from up here on the old Cairo Hotel, the tallest privately owned building here in the district. To the west, you see the U.S. Capitol Dome really puncturing the D.C. skyline. And to the south, you see the Washington Monument do the same thing. But one thing you can't see from up here on the Cairo building is the empty office buildings that are really plaguing D.C.'s downtown right now. And to address this, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has really proposed and is working towards filling these empty office buildings with residents. It's all part of her administration's D.C. comeback plan, where they're looking to revitalize the downtown area by making major shifts to zoning laws and amending D.C.'s Height Act, a century-old law that has kept D.C. buildings relatively low for more than 100 years. For some, like D.C. Council Chairperson Phil Mendelson, the D.C. Height Act isn't something to be touched or changed. It plays a key role in maintaining that low profile that defines D.C. It is a unique and defining characteristic of Washington, D.C., of our nation's capital, of our city, our horizontal skyline. But to the mayor's office and others, it's an outdated law that needs some changing and alterations in order to allow for affordable housing and the development and revitalization of the nation's capital. We're adding people to our downtown. We're adding people to our downtown. We're adding people to our downtown. And that's where we need incentives. And because we have a a downtown that's 90% commercial. Uh, That's not the case in any other ward in the District of Columbia. For a better understanding on this law, its history, and how it impacts the district today, we turn to Georgetown University city planning professor, Uva Brandis. He's worked on D.C. urban planning for decades and really sheds light on this debate over the D.C. Height Act that's just getting started. Uva, welcome to the DMV Download podcast. Hey, thanks for having me and really glad to explore this topic. So we're talking here about the D.C. Height Act. You know, it was made over 100 years ago in 1899. Let's first really talk about the basics of how it got started. What really inspired this law to really go into effect and be made? Well, as you know, we live in one of the most extraordinary planned cities in the world. We have the L'Enfant Plan that was created in the last decade of the 18th century. For many years, that alone served the city very well in terms of organizing uh, investments and urban development. And towards the end, you know, 100 years later, towards the end of the um, 19th century, there was a sense that the symbols of our city were being encroached upon, construction methods were changing, buildings were being built taller. And so this was originally put into place in order to establish a constraint for how our city would grow. And at the center kind of of that fear was the Cairo building. Back then it was the Cairo Hotel. I think now it's condominiums. Briefly, what what happened with that particular building? Sure. So uh, the original law was passed at the in 1899, as you said, and then the Cairo building was built in that first decade afterwards. And then the law was amended uh, in, I believe, 1908. And, you know, the Cairo building is a really interesting building in the city. It's a beautiful building. It's a great building to go visit. But construction methods were changing. And um, the economics of, of land and, 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 and real estate development were changing. And so the opportunity was to build a building higher than was the norm. So the building stuck out like a thumb. Uh, there are lots of excellent historic pictures sh- showing, you know, the one and two 
and sometimes three-story row houses in, right. in, in the neighborhood, and then the Cairo building kind of mushrooming up above, uh, towering above. You know, it's not a skyscraper in the, in the New York and Chicago sense, but for Washington, it was a tall building, and it prompted the um, revision of the original Hyde Act, and so that created a more uniform law um, uh, for the city. Mm. And so, you know, there have been many revisions. I think the latest revision was in 2014, actually. So where does the law kind of stand now, and how does it kind of dictate what builders can do now? So I think it's important to kind of take a step back and understand that the Hyde Act is a piece of federal legislation. Mm. Um, you know, when it was originally passed and initially amended, uh, the city didn't have, nor, nor did many other cities in the United States have, an integrated zoning act that really governed the way in which uh, land uses are organized in the city and, and the way in which buildings can be built. And so I think we have to understand that this law is really kind of unique to Washington. And now with the kind of advent of much more sophisticated regulatory frameworks, including and especially uh, f- focused on not just building codes, but on the zoning code of, of Washington, the Hyde Act is, I would argue, of lesser consequence than these other regulations. Mm. In other words, it's not just the Hyde Act that's constraining builders, uh, but also specific zoning and specific portions, you know, of the city. How does that constrain, and how does that maybe hurt, you know, the district, as it seems like you're saying? Well, I think philosophically, there is there are a number of lines of of reasoning around the Hyde Act and around this idea that as a city we would limit the growth of individual sites and not just individual sites uh, of entire urban districts in in the city. You know, and it's easy to contrast Washington to, uh, you know, the kind of easy comparables would be uh, New York City and Chicago that really are defined in many ways by uh, the height of their buildings. Chicago is actually quite interesting because they uh, originally did also have a height height that they then um, relaxed over time. So I think that one of the factors here is that you are limiting the amount of use intensity um, on a given site. And, you know, that gets into a lot of technical issues around how zoning is organized and how kind of what what in the practice is called land use controls are codified in in the zoning. But the net effect, of course, is that you create a kind of a a flatter, more horizontal city. Mm. uh, And that has a number of kind of different points of view around right. the, the kind of va- value of that. But what we don't have in, in Washington, of course, is um, really gargantuan tall buildings that create a very, very, very high level of use intensity. Mm. Um, you can think of lower Manhattan right. uh, um, as an example of that. And some people you know, love that, as you were kind of alluding to. Some people say, oh, human scale, you know, I can breathe. I can really you know, feel like I'm free in D.C. It's not like a cavernous yeah. kind of area like Manhattan yeah. maybe Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know, we, of course, have uh, all of zoning and all, this whole conversation um, ties back to our street grid. And the L'Enfant Plan and its brilliance includes two different organizing systems for our street grids. You know, we've got the ceremonial avenues that connect 
to the iconography of the city, the Capitol building and the White House and, and so forth. Um, and then we have the street grid itself, which is really about the the economics of the city, about the, the operations of the city. And in each case, the width of the street has a lot to do with how people think about uh, building heights. Mm. It's actually a very traditional, in urban planning, very traditional way of thinking about building heights is to kind of first look at the width of the street uh, to make sure that buildings do not encroach on the public spaces associated with uh, the street grid and uh, that they allow for kind of light and air to enter into the city. And this was uh, a huge, huge debate um, that happened in New York City in the teens and 20s that prompted New York to also zone all of its commercial areas. Mm. Now, all of these kind of zones, height acts, you know, it's pretty technical, but it does have impacts, you know, on people's lives. A big issue right now has been for, you know, many years is housing affordability, right? The cost of living somewhere under a roof. How does that kind of play into it from a, you know, city planning perspective? Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, uh, there's a couple of factors here. One is that typically we at least in the in the kind of last you know maybe 5 to 8 decades have organized commercial uses kind of in our downtown and so our downtown itself until the kind of last couple of decades really has not been thought about as a place for living it's been thought of as a place for you know our government buildings and mm. and, and commercial buildings especially our our offices so now, thinking about residential uses, the the Hyde Act really hasn't been material with respect to residential uses in the city because most of people in Washington have lived around the downtown or f- further out in housing types that were inherently low scale. You know, we're a neighborhood of townhouses and right. and in some cases single family homes. And, you know, the Height Act really has had no impact on residential uses in in the city. We've been hearing from Georgetown University professor of city planning, Uwe Brandes. Coming up after the break, we talk about how you really turn an office building into a residential building. Stick around. So, Uva, what's really prompted this discussion of changing the D.C. Height Act is the D.C. Comeback Plan, which the Bowser administration has proposed to really revitalize the downtown district. And within that plan, it's really calling for a transformation of empty office buildings into residential buildings. How hard is that to do? And is it really feasible for this city? So I think there's three major factors associated with this conversation. The first is that it's just a a basic economy of scale issue, and that is that it is cheaper to build apartments than to go out and build individual, you know, single-family homes. Mm. And and, and it's such an exciting time in D.C., certainly um, over the course of the last two decades, where our population has been growing again, and the issues associated with housing production are, you know, front and center. Uh, Of course, um, the issues of neighborhood change, concerns around gentrification, and just about creating an accessible housing stock Mm. are all really, really important and um, have led to 
the practice of developing a lot more apartment buildings in the city than we historically have had. And that's really great. That's mm-hmm. really, really positive. There's a second issue here, which is critically important, not just to our city and our region, but to cities around the world. And that is the research is very, very clear. Building higher density housing around public transit at the center of metropolitan regions is by far the most sustainable approach toward creating both a minimum of environmental impact and when you get into conversations, again, can get very technical around climate change and greenhouse gas reductions, it is by far the most prudent strategy to create high-density walkable neighborhoods and you know apartment buildings are an essential component um, of that. The third issue, which you raise now, which in some respects is is kind of new for Washington, and that is thinking about the reuse and adaptive reuse of buildings that were built for one use um, into buildings that um, would serve another. Mm. And we have a little bit of this in D.C., but I would point to uh, the city of Philadelphia that has had a very long, you know, 30-year-plus tradition of converting old office buildings and sometimes also industrial buildings that are functionally obsolescent um, <laughs> that, uh, that no longer can right. serve their original purpose and convert them into housing. Mm. Philadelphia is, is best in class in the country with respect to, to these programs and just has been really, really successful in converting buildings that literally stood empty for, in some cases, many, many decades um, into vibrant new communities mm. through, through the tr- reuse of, of these buildings into residential communities. We now have that opportunity in Washington. There's a potential. Yeah, absolutely. As a city absolutely. planner, you and, see that. Oh, absolutely. And we can walk around the downtown and we already see it. It's, it's not something you need to imagine. It's mm. already happening. Mm. Uh, and there's an initial pipeline of projects that are converting old office buildings into, into residential. This is a conversation that was starting even before the pandemic, but my goodness, now, right. you know, following the pandemic and looking at the um, kind of impacts of the work from home revolution, uh, this is now a major opportunity for, for Washington. Is every building in the downtown going to get converted to residential? No. Mm. Do we still need offices downtown? Yes. Right. Um, so this is just a, a new opportunity, and the mayor and her whole uh, administration has jumped on this, and there are already a number of new tools and incentives to promote this mm. uh, activity. How do you go in about converting an office building into you know, a house or an apartment? You, know, you need bathrooms. You need yep. different sorts of plumbing, I'm sure. I'm sure... You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, there's so many th- things that go into it. And you just imagine the, the, the infrastructure that you need just for an individual apartment um, does not exist in an office uh, building. So, yeah, you need to drill a lot of holes into those concrete slabs and bring all the plumbing down for all of your bathrooms and kitchens. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very expensive endeavor. But I think the most important factor that you know I hear uh, being debated and, and discussed and explored within within the real estate community in Washington is really this issue of the building shape itself, its three dimensional shape, and the degree to which 
natural light can kind of be penet penet yeah. penetrate the building, come mm. into the apartments. And you do have um, a kind of set of buildings in the downtown and around the downtown um, that have that are relatively freestanding, that have windows, uh, at least on three and hopefully four sides, that allow for new apartments that are developed in those buildings to, to have lots of natural light. Where it becomes much more difficult is when you are looking at some of the buildings, for instance, if we think of like the kind of classic DC office landscape of K Street, you know, that are sandwiched next to one another with mm. party walls that don't have um, as many wind free facades to allow light in. Those buildings are gonna be a lot more challenging. And really um, some of those buildings, if they were to be converted to residential uses would not just need to be retrofitted on the inside they'd actually need to be retrofitted on the out like the shape of them would have to be retrofitted you have like, to like create corners exactly. and stuff to and, or maybe in some cases courtyards or at least some light, light wells to allow the light uh, down into into the buildings and that it's those cases where this issue of the Height Act is now being discussed again. Mm. And that's kind of like the full circle. That's quite quite interesting now to think about, gee, you know, what tweaks might be made in the regulatory frameworks that govern, you know, what our downtown is in order to allow for these new uses, i.e., you know, residential uses to be um, uh, retrofitted into that fabric. And you use the word tweak, which I think is a very particular word, right? Because it's not... The conversation isn't about an overhaul of the D.C. Hyde Act. From my conversation with council members, you know, some are really fearful that we're going to get skyscrapers. Others are like, look, we're talking about 30 feet more. That's it. Is that where you think this conversation should be had? Tweaks, small alterations, not some huge mega skyscrapers in the D.C. area? Well, I think we're at the beginning of this conversation all over again. Mm. Uh, we've had this conversation multiple times. Uh, about 10 years ago, we, we had a kind of a very thoughtful, mindful conversation about the Hyde Act. Um, and here we are having this conversation again. There's a lot of study that's necessary. We need to kind of understand what the goals are and what is necessary from a land economics perspective in order to convert some of these buildings. And so I see us collectively as a community and as a, as a civic debate being at the beginning of this conversation. Mm. And, you know, it's hard to tell exactly where it's going to end up. I, I think everyone recognizes the very special value associated with having the Hyde Act in Washington, D.C. creates a unique environment, it creates a unique cityscape, it creates uh, literally a, a way of understanding the city that is everything about our special status as a nation's capital. Mm. And I think, you know, before we end here, I would like to bring up other cities around the world. I think Paris is a comparison people have made. You know, when you go to Paris, it's pretty low profile, except in some certain areas. Yeah. You know, what can we learn and how should we think about other cities when thinking about our own? Yep. Um, Paris is always a great analog, of course, and Thomas Jefferson always thought of Washington in the context of Paris. I think, as is true with so many conversations around urban planning and community development, we can't just make sweeping statements. There needs to be a lot of study and very considerate study with respect to 
how buildings change and what those changes, um, how those changes impact uh, kind of life in the public realm of, of the city. And uh, you can imagine, like, really relatively modest changes in the Hyde Act that allow for maybe one or two additional floors to be added to buildings in the downtown. You wouldn't even be able to perceive that as you walk down down the street. Mm. Uh, there are all kinds of clever tricks that urban designers employ with setbacks and use of balconies. And you can think of the kind of rich cityscapes of Paris and the small apartments that exist in Paris kind of up in the roof of buildings that often also have been retrofitted into um, into existence over over the last century and uh, so if you kind of think about it that way and if you think about other more intensive reuses of ground floor retail of maybe some of the alleys and in, in the downtown you really actually are looking at a pretty exciting future for Washington. And and while there is a lot of concern, of course, um, about the kind of economic challenges that this work-from-home revolution poses to the city, um, this is our opportunity Mm. uh, to reimagine city life, neighborhood life, um, and certainly reimagine um, areas such as the downtown and the Golden Triangle in, in, in Washington. And, and let's, let's kind of imagine how they might become the cornerstones for a, a kind of a, a revitalized uh, set of districts and really a kind of a sustainable Washington, D.C. And I know I said that was my final question, but, you know, what's, what's the value for someone who's listening who's like, man, city planning, like, I got to get the groceries, <laughs> you know, I got to fill up my car with gas, you know. Why is this conversation important? It's really about the future of our commercial core. Uh, The downtown and and the kind of center of Washington is the uh, common ground for people, not just in Washington, D.C., but across the metropolitan Washington, D.C., metro region and of course you know we we are um the place that so many tourists from around the world want to come to visit so this has everything to do about creating a a really vital uh local economy a really attractive public realm a place full of culture and a thriving place that people want to be nobody likes walking past an empty office building it is not contributing to the public good uh, Mm -hmm. within within washington and so this is our opportunity to um to innovate a little bit uh adapt to these challenges that we have and find a new path for bringing people together and achieving the kind of greater goals that we have of creating a sustainable and inclusive uh, D.C. Verandas, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And that'll do it for this episode of the DMV Download Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And let us know how we're doing on your favorite podcast platform. Give us some stars or leave a review. This show is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland, online at WTOP.com, and of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.